It is Friday, November 27th, 2020, and you are listening to the Federalist Forum, a constitutional think tank for every patriotic American. Today on the Federalist Forum, I will do an accelerated but deep dive into our right to free speech. Coming up next on the Federalist Forum. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Federalist Forum. I'm your host, Tom. Thank you for tuning into the podcast that's become a popular resource for conservative truth and action, the podcast that speaks truth to history. I'm going to spend today's show discussing the free speech component of the First Amendment to our United States Constitution. Now, the First Amendment in its entirety reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Again, today I'm going to talk specifically to the part that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Let's quickly talk about how and where this right was even established. That is certainly important to understand in context and intention what was meant by this. Where did this begin? Now, the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union Uh, was the first written constitution of the United States. Written in 1777 and stemming really from a wartime urgency, its progress was slowed by fears of central authority and extensive land grabs by uh, the states. It was not ratified until March of 1781. Under these articles, the states remained sovereign and independent, with Congress serving as a last resort on appeal of disputes. Significantly, though, the Articles of Confederation named the new nation for the first time the United States of America. And Congress was given the authority to make treaties and alliances and maintain armed forces and coin money, but the federal government lacked the ability to levy taxes and regulate commerce, issues that led to the Constitutional Convention in 1787 for the creation of new federal laws under the United States Constitution, or what would become the United States Constitution. Now, four years after the United States won its independence from England, 55 delegates from the states, including George Washington, James Madison, and Benjamin Franklin, convened in Philadelphia to compose a, a new U.S. Constitution. And in May of 1787, delegates representing every state except Rhode Island convened at Philadelphia's uh, State House for the Constitutional Convention. During three months of debate, the delegates devised a brilliant federal system characterized by an intricate system of checks and balances. Very important in our government today. Beginning on December 7th of that year, five states, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Georgia, and Connecticut, all ratified it in quick succession. However, other states, especially Massachusetts, opposed the document as it failed to reserve undelegated powers to the states and it lacked uh, constitutional protection of basic political rights such as freedoms of speech, religion, and the press. So in February of 1788, a compromise was reached under which Massachusetts and other states would agree to ratify the document with the assurance that amendments would be immediately proposed. The debates over our government's framework and individual rights were carried on by two distinct sides, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists penned what are commonly referred to as the Federalist Papers, which is a series of 85 essays written by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison between October of 1787 and May of 1788. The Federalist Papers were written and published to urge New Yorkers to ratify the proposed U.S. Constitution, which was drafted in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. In lobbying for the adoption of the Constitution over the existing Articles of Confederation, the essays explain particular provisions of the Constitution in detail. Uh, 
And for this reason, and because Hamilton and Madison were each members of the Constitutional Convention, the Federalist Papers are often used today to help interpret the intentions of those drafting the Constitution. The Anti-Federalists, on the other hand, were a diverse group of uh, coalition really of people who opposed ratification of the Constitution. Notable names among their ranks were Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and Samuel Adams. Now, the most powerful objection raised by the Anti-Federalists hinged on the lack of protection for individual liberties in the Constitution. Most of the state constitutions of the era had built on the Virginia model that included an explicit protection of individual rights that could not be intruded upon by the state. This was seen as a central safeguard of the people's rights and was considered a major revolutionary improvement over the unwritten protections of the British Constitution. Ultimately, though, the debates of the Constitutional Convention and successive talks, the Federalists and Anti-Federalists uh, would reach agreement. And on December 15th of 1791, the Bill of Rights were ratified. The Bill of Rights is the first ten amendments to the Constitution, of course. It spells out Americans' rights in relation to their government. It guarantees civil rights and liberties to the individual, like the freedom of speech, press, and religion. It sets rules for due process of law and reserves all powers not delegated to the federal government to the people of the states. The freedom of speech was of significant importance. And without its inclusion, the Constitution of the United States would never have been ratified. And we may look like a very different country today. We may be a collection of several smaller countries today. Or we may still be the subjects of foreign rule today. The arguments over free speech don't end there, however. Since the ratification of the Bill of Rights, the Supreme Court of the United States has heard and decided on 172 separate cases regarding what free speech means and what it doesn't mean. Clearly, it would take a very long time to review all of those. But what I'm going to do is share with you the categories of cases, the way they are broken out, and just a couple of examples uh, of how they apply to our rights of free speech today. Again, 172 times the Supreme Court has convened and rendered judgment on what free speech means and doesn't mean. And these always begin with the original, the original and most sacred premise of our Constitution and First Amendment, that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. That's where they start with everything. That is paramount. So here are the 12 main categories of case litigations regarding free speech. Uh, they look at sedition and imminent danger, false speech, fighting words and the heckler's veto, freedom of assembly in public forums, symbolic speech, compelled speech, loyalty, oaths, and affirmations, school speech, obscenity, government-funded speech, speech by public employees, commercial speech, and official retaliation. Well, these are very broad categories and topics, and there are many cases. I'm going to highlight just a couple in very brief context that I think are most applicable to discussion between Americans on the streets today with regards to what is protected and what isn't. The most recent case regarding sedition and imminent danger was Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969. Clarence Brandenburg was a KKK leader in Ohio who contacted a reporter at a Cincinnati television station and invited him to cover a KKK rally. Now, portions of the rally were filmed, showing several men in robes and hoods, some carrying firearms, first burning crosses and then making speeches. And one of those speeches, at least one of the speeches, made reference to the possibility of revengeance against people of color, Jews, and those who supported them. Brandenburg was charged with advocating violence under Ohio's statute for his participation in the rally and for the speech he made. The U.S. Supreme Court 
eventually reversed Brandenburg's conviction, holding that the government cannot constitutionally punish abstract advocacy of force or law violation. The majority op uh, opinion was issued from the court as an institution rather than, as, rather than authored and signed by an individual justice. What came from this was known as the Brandenburg Test that should be used to determine if speech can be treated as legitimately seditionary or imminent in danger. The three distinct elements of this test are the intent to speak, the likelihood of lawlessness, and the imminence of lawlessness. All three must be present, which is very, very rare. False speech is another one that has been discussed more and more in our society over uh, really the debate of fact checkers on social media sites in particular, becoming more and more heated and contentious in the nature of what's checked. The most recent SCOTUS case that looked at this was in 2014, and it was Susan B. Anthony List versus Drehouse. In 2010, an organization purchased a billboard uh, advertising in uh, the district of former U.S. Representative Steve Dryhouse of Ohio. That showed a photo of Dryhouse and said, Shame on Steve Dryhouse. Dryhouse voted for taxpayer-funded abortion. The advertisement referred to Dryhouse's vote in favor of a health care overhaul bill. The Susan B. Anthony List took the position that the health care legislation allowed for taxpayer-funded abortion, a claim which was ruled by a judge to be factually incorrect. Uh, in response, Dryhouse, who re represented uh, a heavily pro-life 1st Congressional District of Ohio, filed a complaint with the Ohio Electrics, uh, election, Elections Commission stating that the advertisements were false and violated Ohio election law. Now, the Ohio Election Commissions ruled in Dryhouse's favor in a probable, probable cause hearing in uh, October of 2010. The case bounced around lower courts before Justice Clarence Thomas, on behalf of a unanimous Supreme Court, reversed the judgment of the two lower, lower courts and remanded the case back to the lower courts so that SBA list could pursue its constitutional rights against Ohio law. And back in that district court, Judge Timothy Black finally struck down the law as unconstitutional, saying this, and this is so important, we do not want the government deciding what is political truth, for fear that the government might persecute those who criticize it. Instead, in a democracy, the voters should decide. Period. The people should decide for themselves what they see as truth. The last one I want to talk briefly about today involves the category of fighting words, or what's known as the heckler's veto. In 2011, SCOTUS heard a case of Snyder versus Phelps, and this is going to sound very familiar to many of you shortly. This case would become a landmark decision of the United States Supreme Court. And what that means, briefly, a landmark court case decisions uh, in the United States substantially change the, the interpretation of existing law. And such a decision may settle the law in more than one way. It might es establish a significant new legal principle or concept, overturn prior precedent based on its negative effects or flaws in its reading, uh, reasoning. It may distinguish a new principle that refines a prior principle thus departing from prior practice without violating any rules. And it might establish a test or a measurable standard that can be applied by the courts in future decisions. So this is a very important case. And Snyder versus Phelps, it was a ruling that speech on a matter of public concern on a public street cannot be the basis of liability for a tort of emotional distress, even in the circumstances that the speech was viewed or interpreted as offensive or outrageous. The case brought up the issue of whether or not First Amendment, the First Amendment protected public protesters at a funeral against claims of emotional distress, better known as a tort liability. 
It involved a claim of intentional infliction of emotional distress claimed by Albert Snyder, a man whose son, Matthew Snyder, a U.S. Marine, was killed during the Iraq War. The claim was made in response to the actions of the Phelps family, as well as the Westboro Baptist Church, who were also present and picketing uh, the funeral. The court ruled in favor of Phelps and Westboro in an 8-to-1 decision, determining that their speech related to a public issue was completely protected and could not be prevented as it was on public property. The majority opinion stating that what Westboro said, in the whole context of how and where they chose to say it, is entitled to protection under the First Amendment, and that protection cannot be overcome by a jury finding that picketing was outrageous. Folks, the First Amendment guarantees freedom of speech. Freedom of speech gives Americans the right to express themselves without having to worry about government interference. It is the most basic component of freedom of expression. And sometimes that means the right to be repugnant. We may not like it. The U.S. Supreme Court often has argued cases to further define what types of speech are protected, including speech-provoking actions that would harm others. Uh, but true incitement or threats, while not protected, has been ongoing debate by the Supreme Court to determine exactly what words or phrases have qualified as true incitement, and that continues to be decided on a case-by-case basis. We may not like what someone has to say, but that doesn't always make it untrue, and it certainly doesn't negate their right to say it. If we begin to abridge the speech of others, what happens when they come for our speech once we've set a precedent that freedom of speech is subjective to one's feelings or personal interpretations? We can't allow that to happen. This might be best said by Evelyn Beatrice Hall. Evelyn Hall was an English writer best known for her biography of Voltaire, entitled The Life of Voltaire, first published in, uh, I believe, just at the turn of the century, around 1903. She also wrote The Friends of Voltaire. In The Friends of Voltaire, Hall wrote the phrase, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it, as an illustration of Voltaire's beliefs. Now, a quotation which is sometimes misattributed to Voltaire himself is often cited to describe the principle of freedom of speech. You know, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And from this veteran of the United States military, that is exactly the oath I swore and will continue to uphold and live by. That is all for today. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be very grateful if you'd take a minute to share it with your friends and family. If you're on Apple and would leave me a positive review, it would be very appreciated. Feel free to follow and engage with me on Parlor. My handle is at ExposingLibsBS. Friends, it is time for all of us to passionately take action and remember where in our history of our country these actions come from. And we the people have a proud history of doing just that. You've been listening to the Federalist Forum. Thank you for your listenership and for your patriotism as we fight together to preserve the founding principles of our constitutional republic. Until next time, sapientia est potentia. Wisdom is power.